The Tiger's Whisker, a Korean folktale. There was a young spouse, just several years into her marriage, who was at her wit's end. Her husband had always been a gentle, tender, and loving mate before he had left for the wars. Upon his return, however, he was consistently cross, angry, and unpredictable to the point that she was afraid to live with him. Occasionally, she would glimpse his former self of the man she had come to know and love, but the resentment had built exponentially, and their relationship was dire. When her situation became unbearable, she sought out a wise sage who lived high in the mountains. She climbed for many days, until finally reaching an obscure cave-like structure, and as she approached the open doorway, she heard a voice echo from inside. I hear you. What is your need? The woman stepped back at the announcement as the wise sage had not yet turned her back. Unsure of how to proceed, the wife explained her situation and her deep desire for her husband to change. The wise sage heard the woman's story and simply said, What do you expect me to do about this? The wife had no certainty on recommendation she was apt to give such a wise sage and simply offered for the sage the most simple solution she assumed wise sages did, to make her a potion or drink that would do the trick and put everything right. The wise sage responded that no such potion exists. Though, as she thought longer, she supposed one could be concocted. The wise sage explained, you will need to bring me a blade of grass from a fertile marsh and a peppercorn. The wife was relieved at the ease of this task, but just as he was about to leave the cave, the wise sage finally turned around, looked her straight in the eyes and said, but there is one more ingredient that will be necessary to cure your situation. It is an unusual ingredient, but in order to change your husband, the potion shall call for the whisker of a live tiger. What? The woman exclaimed. That's impossible. But after getting no response from the sage who had again turned her back, the woman realized that finding this whisker was her only hope. She made her way down the mountain and easily enough found the blade of grass and peppercorn. Now she was faced with her impossible task of retrieving a whisker from a living tiger. That night she barely slept, tossing and turning over the overwhelming task ahead of her. She decided to get up early with a rice bowl covered in meat sauce and proceeded to the mountainside where a tiger was known to live. She placed the rice bowl in the open grass and hurried away, afraid of getting confronted by such a powerful creature. As she had fallen asleep, she woke up, looked out to the grass, and saw that the rice bowl was gone. Disappointed that she had missed her opportunity, she returned with more rice the next day, placed it in the same spot, and again retreated. As before, she woke up to see the rice bowl gone. Again, she put out rice, but this time, she noticed the creature stir in anticipation of a meal as soon as she walked away. The woman watched the majestic tiger graciously walk up to the bowl and eat the rice before qu quickly proceeding out to the site. Weeks passed of the same routine of providing rice every day, and once more she returned as normal with her rice bowl, but this time the tiger came out to meet her, ate the food, and scampered away. Several more days passed, and she noticed that this time the tiger sat waiting in the open grass as the woman approached in expectation of the next bowl of rice. 
Weeks had now passed, and the tiger had grown fond of this woman who provided such pleasant food. The woman's patience and dedication had grown on the tiger, and the powerful creature now allowed the woman to stroke its fleece. Upon finishing the rice bowl that day, the tiger did not return to its shelter, but stayed near the woman. The next day there was even more connection, as the tiger, after finishing the rice bowl, followed the woman to the nearby trees where the woman often waited, and as they sat down, the tiger took rest, laying its head on her lap. Finally, said the woman, I am close enough to the tiger to retrieve a whisker. And she took out her knife and snipped a whisker from the tiger's face. Immediately, she ran up the mountain, full of exuberance, and stood in the door of the wise sage's cave. The wise sage was still sitting with her face away from the door and spoke softly to the woman. I hear you. You have come back. Tell me, do you have all of the ingredients for the potion? Yes, the woman replied. I have the blade of grass from a fertile marsh, a peppercorn, and finally, after many weeks, I have now retrieved the whisker of a live tiger. The woman then told the story of her daily task of patiently developing the connection that changed the tiger's response to her. When she finished, the wise sage took the tiger whisker and released it into the wind, never to be seen again. The woman took several steps in an attempt to catch the whisker as if the sage had made a dreadful mistake, but in seeing that the sage made no effort to catch the whisker now flying off in the wind, the woman turned to the wise sage with a furious rage. Why did you do that? It took me weeks to retrieve what you had asked, and now it is gone forever. The wise sage turned to face the woman and said, I told you, no such potion exists to change your husband. The only thing that will change him is what you have learned by retrieving this whisker. A potion is not what you need. Only take what you have learned and your marriage will be restored. Here we are, another episode of Becoming Human where we talk about any field or idea or concept possible to help us become the best version of ourselves and build the best world possible. And I like to think of myself as the, like the tour guide, but, but the tour guide that you just happen to pick up on the side of the road Right? This, is, this is a relatively raw anecdotal process where I'm just speaking from my experience and the little bit I know. But I also take the landscape really seriously. And if I can help you see some things, great. But honestly, I'm just sharing with you what I am constantly in the process of discovering myself. And so if you listen to this and you say, like, he has no idea what he's talking about, that's actually not a critique. Uh, it would be an honest assessment. Um, but I am doing the best I can. It's also why this is not overly produced. I don't really have a whole lot of gimmicks, you know, as, as a host, if, if you want to call me that. I just want this to feel as human as possible. That being said, I'm still recording into a microphone and putting it on the internet. But anyways, enough self-deprecation. It's a pastime of mine because we need to handle an issue that has probably roosted in the back of your mind as we have talked about change and conflict and perspective because you look at individual change and that's fine but we start wondering 
how does this apply to other people? Because we have lots of problems that we experience with other people. And if you've listened to the last chunk of episodes, there's a good chance various names have come to mind of people in your life that, you know, do the things we've talked about. There's also the chance that as you came to grips with, you know, like the inescapability of conflict, for example, you may have wondered, hey, instead of working through all that complex stuff relationally, what if, what if I just changed them? Right? That, that would solve the problem. So that's what we're going to explore today. Can you change other people? And if we can't, then what do we do? So I want you to begin by considering someone in your life, someone that you are quite dependent on, you have a lot of intimacy and proximity with, someone that you'd like to change. You know, there's something about their presence or their lifestyle or the effects that they have on you that, you know, just be easier if they weren't like that. You know, who is someone that you would like to be different? You know, if they were different, that would probably make things better. And, and the most notable situation this involves is with people's perspectives. Right? Now, having listened to all of the episodes so far, I'm kidding. Why would you do that? A contrary perspective is often the most frustrating part of shared existence. Right? And you're seeing this right now with like vaccinations or abortion laws or the situation in Afghanistan uh, or even like the strange phenomenon of allegiance to particular sports teams. And let's be honest, the current tactics we use with people who have different perspectives than us just aren't very successful. We try to change them. It doesn't really work, right? Like a clever social media post or like a heavy-handed rhetorical slap hasn't been that effective in changing anyone's mind. And even if you are right and they're hopelessly wrong, changing other people is a futile attempt per our current approach. You know, whether it's a perspective or a behavior, or you just really want your spouse to stop leaving the dishes on the counter. How do we change other people? Like the woman with the tiger. Maybe we could just find the right potion. Now, I want to start with a disclaimer. This is a bit of a strange conversation, and if you're like me, you wonder if we are even allowed to talk about this. Changing other people, it's kind of like a like a cultural taboo. Changing yourself, that that's a noble pursuit. It's also, you know, quite a, a topical interest in our culture today. But changing other people is not so noble of a conversation. Yet, I imagine it is something we consider often. So we might as well talk about it. And I think one of the reasons this is kind of taboo is because changing someone from A to B to C is thought to involve some sort of self-serving motivation. You know, the, the person trying to change someone has a stake in the game here. And the way we do see people try to change others, it doesn't always appear to go well either, right? It either ends destructively for the person or the relationship. Maybe it's just generally unproductive. And typically, you know, the unhealthy interactions reveal some of the problems we have in navigating the world with other people. And so the noble response to all this would just be like, well, so don't try to change other people. And I'd actually recommend that. Remember, one of the emphases of the, the Stoics from last episode, control only what you can control. 
Other people are not your responsibility. And there's not a whole lot of power you have in the situation. But I'm smart enough to know that most of us won't settle for that, myself included. The problem is that our default method for trying to elicit change in others is often a matter of control. It's an impersonal, self-asserting, often malicious uh, attempt, and, and it likely involves burying yourself upon someone else. The other problem, you know, if we're, we're going to try and be noble, you know, and just not try to change people, is that the sociological reality is that simply by being in contact with another being, you are going to change them. Think back to the definition of conflict or uh, George Herbert Mead's concept of the social self that we explored a while ago, or just uh, phenomenologically. If someone's understanding of reality is dependent on how they perceive reality, and you are a part of that perceived reality, then you have impacted them in some way that uh, has, has developed them into who they are. So, so trying to not change another person is technically impossible. The real question is, how will we change them? What will the interaction be like? What dynamics will be at play? How, how overt or implicit will the change be? And so when, when we try to impede on others in order to change them, we are taking a, a natural relational fixture of existence and we're just turning it up to 11. What we may need to ask then is how do we change people well? How do we interact with other beings in a way that is healthy, other-centered, and constructive for everyone involved? And, and further, is there a way to consider these negative relational situations, you, you know, the person you have in mind that you would really enjoy changing, that can avoid disaster and actually be beneficial for the relationship as a whole? You can certainly interact with this adventure toxically. You can also avoid the toxic control that dominates the discussion. But in the lore of being high and mighty, especially in, in the most common relationships of daily existence, what is the best way to interact with this inevitability? What is the best way to compel a positive influence on the people you are in contact with? And, and let's be honest, what's the best way to interact with the desire we may have to change people? And so in this episode, we're going to look at how not to do that. Over the next two episodes, I, I hope we arrive at our answer. But today, we're just going to focus on what not to do, how this shouldn't work, or just generally how this goes wrong. And, and then next episode, we're going to try to offer a way to engage with this healthily. You're going to naturally change people. We all kind of have the desire to do it. Conflicts arise all the time. We might as well have some tools to do this well. So that's where this is eventually going to land. But today, let's just look at how not to do it. So first, a little science and social commentary. And then next episode, I, I want to get into some of the psychology behind this. And we'll eventually end with a quote that has vastly shaped how I lead, how I parent, but specifically how I interact with other people. So we're going to make this real short. You're going to change people. It's 
going to happen. Here's how not to do it with control and violence. Okay, so now I'm going to spend a lot longer telling you exactly what I mean by that because we do need to be specific about these two words. They, they can be overused and misunderstood. So when I talk about not changing people violently, okay, I'm not necessarily containing that to overt physical violence. That can definitely be a tactic, uh, but then you're also uh, breaking the law or humanitarian issues, and uh, there's much more ethical agreement not to do that. I'm talking about violence as forcing your will upon someone else, okay, which can be done physically, but the larger circumference of violence with others is a selfish means to insert yourself over and above them to dictate their existence. All right, so why shouldn't we do this? I, I, I want to look at some theory here. We're going to get into some philosophy as well uh, because I really think it's important to make a case why this isn't a good idea. And then I want to make a case for why it's actually not practically valuable either. Right? Even if we want to ignore the moral or philosophical constraints, there's a reason this doesn't work relationally too. So the, the first reason not to do this from a moral perspective is because in order to say it's okay, you have to be okay with violence as a means to outcomes generally. Now, maybe you are okay with this, right? So you don't have a moral issue with it. You can you can interact violently, you know, very Machiavellian, ends justify the means, work out of your own self-interest, and that could actually cause benefits. So let's say you're morally fine with it. Then we would have to ask beyond the moral question, is this effective? Now, my moral dictation of this issue follows a line of thinking that comes from Immanuel Kant, and it's called categorical imperatives. Uh, if you're familiar with philosophy, you've heard about this before. It's it's one of the the most notable philosophical component, uh, uh, components throughout history. But a lot of people haven't heard of this. So let me try to explain it in a way that fits with what we're trying to do here. The idea is that for something to be true and moral, it needs to be consistent in every sequence and possibility. So Kant uses the behavior of lying, that we can justify lying in, in specific instances where the means justify a better end, right? Which is, which is a, a common justification for violence as well. You know, I had to kill that person because of what they were going to do. Or we had to assassinate that dictator because of their potential demise of an entire nation. You know, we had to go to war because their evil is greater than any evil the war will bring. You know, that's the essence of just war theory. Or, you know, we had to drop the nuclear weapons on civilian targets because it would be better than the hundreds of thousands of people that would die in battle. And, you know, we had to stop the Axis powers and it's worth it. I'm not going to get into peace communication here in this episode. And there is a vast, complex terrain that goes into every single one of those conversations I just brought up. I want to be clear about that. I want to focus on Kant's categorical imperatives for explaining why violence isn't an effective way of changing people. Because in all of those situations, those arguments are valid only if we are considering that specific instance. There is an idea called the myth of redemptive violence, that violence, though a bad, negative, destructive thing, is capable of redeeming things. 
Right? And, and why this is referred to as a myth is because uh, the violence to someone, no matter how justified, then gives that person or nation a justification to be violent toward the person or nation that perpetrated the violence on them. Right. So, you know, the tribe attacks and we defend ourselves and uh, then we go, well, because they attacked us. Now we have to attack them. And then they go, well, because they attacked us. Now we have to attack them. And it just keeps on going and going and going. And what this has to do with categorical imperatives um, is that, you know, vengeance and revenge, it just continues in the cycle. And if we are okay with justifying violent means to achieve some supposedly better end, then we have to be okay with that process being available in any instance by any person. So with lying, we might see an immediate benefit to telling a lie. But then we have to be okay with others using that to their benefit. And if lying is just permissible all the time, then then even your singular advantage of a lie, it becomes obsolete. Because if everyone is lying all the time, there's no more advantage to it. The same with violence. If everyone can have a moral imperative to justifying violence, then you have to be okay with someone acting violently toward you, even if you disagree with their justification. You know, as long as they have one, it's permissible. So, so philosophically, no, I don't think violence and control is effective. And again, violence and control dealing with uh, forcing your will upon someone's uh, else, where you use a selfish means to insert yourself over and above them to dictate their existence. Philosophically, doesn't make sense. Practically, though, I don't think it's effective either. And this deals with the myth of redemptive violence and the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. All right, so if you change the other person with control and violence, and you impede on their identity by forcing your will upon them, how are they going to respond? Well, now they have a justifiable reason to both resent you and to reciprocate the violence. And I'm just assuming that a person who prioritizes forcing their will on others is not going to be very inclined to have their will impeded on by someone else forcing that person's will on them. Just my hunch. So the cycle of action and reaction is just going to keep on going indefinitely until the intentions are removed. And, uh, you know, usually that's with the termination of the relationship. But let's say that the violent control isn't uh, reciprocated. Okay, so that's not the reason that this is going to fall apart. Um, You know, they're not just fighting back and forth. Let's just say the change gets extrinsically forced upon the person and it has to be implemented. How is that going to work? How sustainable is that change? If the only reason the person accepted your demands was out of submission and not out of their own empowered agreement or intention, have they changed simply to buy them time? Or just because they had no other choice? Like how well have enforced treaties worked throughout history? Now, we'll, we'll put Germany, after World War I, in such a state of weakness that there will be indefinite peace, right? Yeah, that went well. Forcing someone else to change, where, where their change is extrinsically motivated, 
last as long as the person has no other options. Meanwhile, they are either planning their escape or seething with rage, and any changed behaviors are simply the result of them going along with the setting at hand, right? They're going to concede until the tide shifts. And as far as I know, relationally speaking, I've yet to see this described as a healthy relationship. But if that's your thing, no, it shouldn't be your thing. It doesn't work. So when this happens, either the person, you know, needs to arrive as changed by their own conclusion, or you're going to have that predicament. You know, take a marriage, for example. Let, let's say one spouse has an unhealthy habit or character trait that the other spouse despises. Now, the spouse changing their partner, it may be out of good intent, right? That this issue contributes to unhealth to the relationship. And if it would just change, everything would be better. So the husband or wife, in an attempt to change their spouse, they get critical. They just remind them of their fault and and threatens that unless they change, the relationship isn't going to work and it will be their fault, which gets degrading and toxic and divisive real quick. Critique can be a form of judgment and judgment is often a form of control, which is often an act of violence and, and it's mostly emotional and mental, but this even can manifest itself physically too. So maybe the spouse changes, right? Things are calm, but are things good? Is the problem solved? And did the spouse actually change? And if they did, how long will that change last? Just consider yourself for a moment. Have you ever had someone unabashedly shame or critique or attack you and your response was, you know, you're right. I'm going to have to change that immediately. Behavior transformation is on the horizon, right? And and this isn't just some rhetorical device. Maybe you have, right? And good for you because that means you were able to transform a violent methodology, filter it, and allow it to emerge as an intrinsic decision of your own accord. But I'm guessing most of us stop at the violent methodology, And most of us need an alternative approach in order to own the change ourselves. And if most of us need that for ourselves, we might want to attribute that the people we want to change do as well. Extrinsic, forcible change, it may lead to behavior modification, but it rarely leads to behavior transformation. And it rarely lasts longer than the threat. As soon as another option is available, the behavior will revert back to the previous desire. As soon as the circumstances change, so will the person. Because the change is not based on the person's own intent, and it's often void of any mutual relationship. So, now that we've covered the most common way to attempt to change people and have concluded that it might not be the most effective. What is effective? How do we get people to intrinsically change? Well, again, you could just remove your desire to change them in the first place. Control what you can control. I'll always recommend that. But in the real conflict of daily living with people we are dependent on in love, we gotta offer more than that. So how do we move someone 
from A to B to C? I'm glad you asked. And we'll look at that next episode.